You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast from the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. This week is part two of our conversation with Tom Burgess, an investigative correspondent with the Financial Times and the author of Kleptopia, How Dirty Money is Conquering the World. Just a note before we jump in that the lawyers on our show today are appearing in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. If you want to hear the beginning of our conversation with Tom Burgess, go back and listen to last week's episode. But for now, we're going to jump right back in. Um, one thing I did want to ask you is there, there was great outrage in the United States of America at the close of the financial crisis to the extent that there was a close to it in 2008. Um, we've now got some of our great industrial cities are, are rust belts. Um, people's houses are underwater. These are really not good times. I would point out that um, many of those people are sort of reaching back uh, for uh, a golden era um, when they once lived there. But I think what really upset people was the fact that the American taxpayers bailed out these enormous financial institutions. So one thing I'd like for you to talk about, we, we talk about there being really not a partisan um, patina to all of this as such, but the very fact that both UK taxpayers, US taxpayers, and, and frankly, the German population as well, are footing the bill for this stuff. Can you sort of explain how that is? Um, why is so much taxpayers' money uh, drained out of the system? That, for me, is the sort of spirit of kleptocracy. Ultimately, that's, that's what corruption is. It's quite simple, isn't it? It's just diverting that which belongs to the collective, diverting that to private interests. Um, in a kind of in, in, in an improper or illegal or illicit way, um, and that's why you could argue that the you know some of the big some of the worst bank bailouts of two thousand eight were corrupt in a sense. Um, you know, I've been writing recently uh, stories in the Financial Times about um, pipeline contracts in the former Soviet Union going to China and how the profits appear to be skimmed off from those. Essentially, that that's what that's what a corrupt regime is. It's the it's the day to day task of diverting taxpayers' money. We call it. I mean, but you know that, that which belongs to the collective. In a, in a lot of places, it's not taxpayers' money because no one pays any tax. It's the money that comes in for a country's oil or minerals or whatever else is exported. That pool of money that belongs to the Commonwealth. The task of the kleptocrat is to divert that through chicanery and deception, and then. Uh, hide the money abroad through chicanery or, or deception and um that's the spirit of kleptocracy and that i i worry that 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 is fusing with things like privatization and outsourcing and these other vogues essentially to create a system where you're quite right if you're sitting in the rust belt or northern england where i grew up you look at a system and you see a system that is simply designed as to like siphon off from the collective to the few. And that's that's part of the idea of kleptopia, the idea, and I get to it, this image towards the, the end of the book of a sort of walled off place that's separate from the rest of us. That's almost in sort of taking taking tribute from the from the Commonwealth. And I just add one more point, you know, um, we think about um, taxpayers' money going, we get outraged quite rightly about taxpayers' money going to, let's say, bailed out, bail out fraudulent bankers. Um, and we get um, outraged about, quite rightly now, about um, taxpayers' money going for dodgy 
COVID contracts, let's say. But let's remember that it's also our institutions, the, the institutions that belong to us collectively, that are also being put at the service of kleptocrats. Now, this, I think, is almost more troubling and it's harder to discern. But the one, one thing that really strikes me is, is the way the criminal justice system is being weapon in in the democracies is being weaponized now the way it's always been weaponized within the kleptocracies what do i mean you know since 2008 we've had massive austerity right so we had spent a lot of taxpayers money on um rescuing private institutions and we we, we made that money back by cutting public spending so we have that has included cutting the budgets of the agencies that are supposed to protect us from exactly the kind of corruption that got us into this mess in the first place the, uh, the white collar crime agencies. And um, they're also supposed to protect us from corruption and the spread of kleptocracy. So we've, just when we need them most, we've been cutting back budgets. Um, the units of the Department of Justice that are supposed to deal with kleptocracy, there's about five people in there. The, um, the serious fraud office in London has, um, um, oh, 10, fair enough, I'm being told. Um, there are about five people in that unit, I understand, or few anyway, too few. Um, in the UK, there are there are a handful of people trying to deal with all the suspicious activities report. The Serious Fraud Office in the UK budget about fifty million dollars a year. It's huge test case at the moment up against these three Central Asian oligarchs, worth seven billion dollars between them. And what you're seeing, more, and 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 in that case, as I as I write in the book, the terrifying thing is that you're starting to have witnesses turning up dead to a massive UK corruption case. You know that we, we're shocked when that happens in. In Russia, that's happening in the, the biggest corruption case in the UK. We don't know the, 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 the we don't understand yet how those those witnesses died, but we know that there were highly suspicious circumstances. Um, and what's happening more and more is that these uh, the agencies that um, which we entrust with protecting us from kleptocrats and from dirty money, they are being weaponized by those very kleptocrats. Because what happens is, uh, you know. A, 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 cash-starved agency with a, some young, brilliant, ambitious lawyers with a spirit of public service battling away to make some good cases. What happens is a private intelligence agency that's been hollowed, hired by oligarch A will turn up one day and say, here is a 500-page evidence file on oligarch B. Uh, and the private agent intelligence agency will have a former senior prosecutor, a couple of people who used to be in the CIA and MI6, a big... Um, uh, sharp talking PR guy. You know, make a fantastic case why oligarch B is fantastically corrupt and a danger to democracies and must be taken down. Now, the the, the, the young lawyer, the the SFA, what's she going to do? She's she's got no budget to do this kind of research herself. She's going to say, "Oh, great, thank you. I'll take that case and I'll take down oligarch B." And she will go and she'll take down oligarch B. And oligarch B deserves to be taken down because oligarch B is indeed corrupt. None of the stuff in that file is false. The point is that oligarch A has selected his enemy as a target. For, for a Western criminal justice system, because the Western criminal justice system doesn't have the resources to do these kind of cases. Whereas the private intelligence agency, working for a paying client who can use the intelligence, private intelligence agencies to go after their enemies, they have almost limitless resources, right? They've got the resources of entire kleptocracies behind them. And in that way, and, and other similar ones, I think that the real danger is that the, that the rule of law itself starts to become a tool for the, for, for the kleptocrats, unless we get much savvier about how the, 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 the criminal and, and civil uh, courts are used in this way. So I, I would refer our listeners back to 
our um, Rob Dannenberg uh, podcast. He makes many of the same points that you do. Um, we're starting to really draw a picture about what this problem is exactly um, across, you know, it's really difficult because a lot of times Americans conceive themselves as kind of like walled off, we're America. But in a global mm. system, these things really do transcend um, across barriers. It really is more of, you know, the, yeah. the, um, the image that you draw um, as far as like, it's, it's really a group of like the haves and the have nots as opposed to. Yeah. That's global. Being, that's without borders. Exactly. Yeah. And knowing that's such a, you're so right. That exceptionalism is so dangerous. They, it's, the UK does it too. The idea that um, corruption is something that happens elsewhere. It's often, it's a kind of, kind of soft racism. I find like uh, the idea that night, you know, I lived in Nigeria. I'm very fond of Nigeria, but um, the idea that there's something—the the idea I think that a lot of people and a lot of narratives rest on—is that there's something inherent in the the Nigerian personality that makes Nigeria corrupt, and therefore there's something inherent in the American personality that makes America resistant to corruption. I mean, what absolute rubbish! But we do lean on that, and and it, and it blinds us to the fact that you know, there but for a couple of strong institutions goes the United States. And um, I think it's absolutely, uh, yeah, I'd say it's absolutely vital to, to remember that the, um, it, there is no fundamental difference. There's just political systems and they can fall apart. The US came pretty close in the last few months. And your other podcast recently on um, pardons, presidential pardons. I mean, everybody knows if you watch an election in, I'll go back to Nigeria again. Nigerian elections are primarily about maintaining immunity from prosecution that's the first thing you've got to do if you spent a light a political career in corruption got to make sure that your enemies don't get to use the rule of law the sort of phony rule of law against you like that was trump's game trump did a ran an election like a kleptocrat it's all about pardons all about maintaining immunity from prosecution that once your system becomes corrupted that's the, that's the whole game it's like but it's, phony but elections it's for not that purpose but it's not just, you know, it, it is more of, it, this is coming up more in, in Western countries, right? Because you can mm. make an argument that the same happened with, um, in Israel with uh, Netanyahu's most recent Absolutely. Election, Israel's right? a great example. Yeah. So, it, so it's not impervious to um, this kind of, this kind of influence in, in, you know, the yeah. quote unquote civilized West. Um, you, well, I'd, you say, quote I'd, say, from, I'd say that in, in, in Nigeria or in um, the let's say it's the Caucasus, uh, you know, Central Asia, um, last parts of Latin America. I think a lot of people there, if you have these discussions in a bar somewhere, they would note the irony of the big Western multinationals, um, the, the, the oil companies, the oil service groups, the arms companies, having so merrily exported corruption to the Middle East, to the former Soviet Union, to Africa, paying bribe after bribe after bribe to get hold of the oil they want or the arms deals they want. Um, so well documented in all the FCPA cases, there's a certain irony that that kind of corruption that's been so so long exported is 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 now coming is now rebounding on the on the the rich nations. And for the the younger listeners out there, the law students, the FCPA is Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, um, and you know you can also. Um, uh, uh, see that in some of the um, some of the torture cases, the state-sponsored um, torture cases, where Absolutely. big multinational corporations have been sued for enabling, um, you know, torture or propping up um, dictators, and you know, the Alien Torts uh, statute has not been effective in 
in getting justice for those um, for victims of those kind of state-sponsored uh, of that state-sponsored violence. Yeah, the role of multinationals is so important here because they, I mean the people at the top of the multinationals. Who I, I'm still pretty sure there's never been a chief executive con, um, convicted under the FCPA. Um, certainly Cheney wasn't, and from then on, no one else. I mean, the people at the top of the, the these these huge multinationals obviously take salaries commensurate with the idea that they actually control these multinationals. And yet, when it comes to responsibilities, taking responsibility for the, what these multinationals do in Equatorial Guinea or Azerbaijan or Saudi Arabia they uh, they abdicate that responsibility. A certain sort of disconnection there, I'd say. Uh, and one final, um, just one final note on this point, and then we'll um, move on to uh, my next, my, I just want to pick up a thread of what you said, but you do quote uh, Hannah Arendt um, in, in mm. your book. Um, the quote that you used is, before mass leaders seize the power to fit reality to their lies, their propaganda is marked by its extreme contempt for facts as such, and for, in their opinion, fact depends entirely on the power of man who can fabricate it. So you yeah. were using I mean, what a that. wonderful, what a wonderful, that whole section of it's from the, um, on the origin of totalitarianism. That whole section on um, the years when totalitarian states take shape and the way they start to approach the truth is totally wonderful. I mean, terrifying and wonderful. It is, but just to kind of you know just bring home this idea of that it's not, you know, it's not unique to one culture or one people or, or one set of people. It, this is something that pervades. Right, she's writing about you know, Germany. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I do want to, you know, kind of like talk a little bit about, you know, the haves and the have nots. I, I am, depending on what your vantage point is, um, I am, I'm one of these taxpayers, right. That, that propped up the banks and the financial collapse, right? Uh, you know, one of the things that I that I felt while I was reading this book is I felt terrifyingly small, right, as just like a voter and a taxpayer and someone who doesn't have, you know, I, 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 I certainly have more compared to, to, to some. I'm, I am a decidedly middle-class American, right? So I, right. I recognize that does give me a certain amount of privilege to clean water and clean, you know, air and, and, and air conditioning sure, and things sure. like that. But, but you, you don't know, think anyone would call you an oligarch? I'm no, I'm far from an oligarch. And so one of the things that really struck me um, while, while I was reading this is just kind of like, where where is the accountability if both sides of the aisle are failing us? And it is, it's easier, as you detail in the book, to for some of our um, institutions of power to kind of look aside, turn aside when regulators uncover this corruption and punish the regulators indeed. Um, what are some of the things that, you know, we could, we could be doing as taxpayers, like, can we be, um, you know, like banging on on our members of Congress's doors with with copies of your book saying, do something. Um, there was a, quite a hue and cry when no bankers went to jail um, following following um, the most recent collapse, right? Um, that led us to the Great Recession. What can we do? Well, there's a few things. I'd say, you know, we talked about that Hannah Arendt insight earlier about how um, well, she's writing about totalitarians, and I'd say it applies to kleptocrats who share many of the features of those, those 20th century totalitarians. Um, the idea of um, destabilizing the truth. So it's not that they have to sort of prove their case or, or make their argument to the people. It's that they, they start to dismantle or attack or undermine the very idea that there is a truth on which we can agree. And, you know, it's no surprise that the people doing that are money launderers. That's 
fundamentally what they need to do is uh, kind of fictionalize the source of their wealth. That is the key to their power. Now, if you can do that with your money, you can do that with any aspect of your life. And it's no coincidence for me that this kind of massive breakdown of the idea of the truth that we're seeing around the world is happening at the same time as this huge spread of kleptocratic money, because they're all started, they're all part of the same process, which is a kind of fabrication of facts in the interest of illicit power. Um, now, what, what can we do that I mentioned that because it brings me to the first thing, well, thing we could do, I think we need to um, reappraise our, um, our decision that we all hate the mainstream media these days, the, 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 the mainstream media, uh, if it dies, we are desperately going to miss it. There is no way that a Twitter journalist is going to have the resources, the experience to put together the kind of teams that big international news organizations can do, take massive risks legally, personally, go to extremely dangerous places and find out things that the global kleptocracy doesn't want us to know. That That is a really serious, often life-changing undertaking. And um, the, the the mainstream media... Uh, for all its flaws and confusion in recent years, that is the institution that can do that. So uh, one thing we can do is take out a few subscriptions to some really decent publications. It doesn't have to be only the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Financial Times. Take out, if you're in the UK, take out your subscription to Private Eye, get it sent over to the US. Open Democracy, magnificent. There are lots of examples. You know, Bellingcat's a fantastic example of something that I guess is becoming part of the mainstream media these days. But the 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 I we should rein in our cynicism of the of the mainstream media and remember how valuable it is one thing to do the other is yeah you're right about contacting um contacting democratic representatives um we i think we're right to um I, I suppose what i'm trying to say is that the there is not apart from maybe doing away with anonymous anonymous ownership of companies one way or another that would be a, a useful policy thing to push for um uh, I would say it's, there is no sort of silver bullet that we don't need to, we're not waiting for an invention of a technique to answer this problem. It's, it's right there in front of us. Um, the, it's the, it's the, the reinvigoration of the institutions that protect freedom, essentially. I mean, the opposite of kleptocracy in one sense is, is democratic freedoms. So the institutions of the rule of law, of representative politics, of free speech. I, I think much more and it's it's difficult to say how one goes about preparing for this but what you see i think more and more is the real people who strike a blow are whistleblowers um particular journalists from time to time which is not including myself in this but there's some brilliant ones i've known you know very very brave sources who expose things very particular um you know public officials local level national level international level the thing is you never know when it's going to be you that's the lesson I've had working on this book for five years and meeting people like Nigel and some of the sources who took tremendous risks to help me write the book is you, you don't, no one sets out to be in that situation. No one sets out to be a whistleblower. It's just sometimes the finger of fate points at you. You, you, the, the, the secrets, the, the secrets of this power system fall into your lap and it's whether you have the moral courage in that situation to act for the greater good. That's, that's really what it boils down to. So um, I, I think maybe the way we could all help with that is is um, is by you know celebrating people like Nigel, celebrating the whistleblower, celebrating the the awkward type who won't go along with the the, the soft culture regulators. Celebrate the the courageous lawyer who walks out of the 
you know, the blue chip firm because its clients are too evil. Just try to cultivate our courage to stand up to the admittedly terrifying tactics that the kleptocrats use. I really love that call to action. Um, I would, but, but I think we, you know, we're a legal podcast. And so we want to, we want to think about some ways that we can um, use the law in order to get at some of these issues. Yes. Um, the National Defense Authorization Act contains some provisions that ascribe criminal penalties for the concealment and concealment alone of money from foreign political officials. And it re- required disclosure of beneficial ownership of foreign corporations and a filing with the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. Um, lastly, it would make dealers in antiquities like art auctioneers who sell Van Gogh paintings for millions to anonymous purchasers um, as financial institutions. What do you think about um, some of these, uh, some of these um, reforms? And um, do you have an opinion about whether some of the stories in your book might have been different if these laws had been, um, you know, enacted at the time and followed. It's all good stuff. Yes, I think all of this makes it harder for kleptocrats. I think the, um, I think really since Misha Glennie wrote Mafia in two thousand and eight, brilliant, absolutely brilliant book, and then um, other books in this area that have followed. I mean, Catherine Belton's book Putin's People this year. She's an old colleague of mine. That's a phenomenal book. I, I think. Um, through that and through the efforts of some tremendous politicians on on all sides and some some incredibly courageous uh, lawyers, um, the the idea of kleptocracy and the danger it poses is spreading more widely. I think it's going to be fascinating to see how the Biden administration builds this into policy, how central it makes combating kleptocracy to to foreign and domestic policy. I think there are a lot of um, brilliant well-placed people pushing for them to do that now all the legal measures you mentioned i think are all promising the art market has been used to um launder money for a long time so making that tighter is uh, is important that will just it's whack-a-mole this stuff so that will push the money somewhere else it's not believe it or not that art that kleptocrats are sort of uniquely um uniquely brilliant connoisseurs of fine art it's that that was the asset that was that was easiest to get at now that that, that money will will change course and we'll have to be on the lookout to where it goes. The, 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 the declarations of beneficial ownership has been what anti-corruption activists have been putting putting forward for a long time. So essentially, you know, you have, a, you, have, you have registers where the owners of companies record their names. I mean, you might think that that should be an absolute sort of basic requirement of any sort of business or capitalism, but oddly enough, it hasn't been for a long time. So that is a useful thing. I'd say the, the risk with that, um, uh, and I, interested to know what you think about that but, but about this but the the risk with that is that it it could become like the suspicious activity reports whereby if the if the the law enforcement agencies themselves don't have the resources then all beneficial ownership registries become it's just an enormous another mass of unusable data that's not being checked in the uk they've had rules along these lines for a little while and you know there's sort of like two-year-old babies registered as the owners of companies and i think donald duck or something like that didn't it so oh my goodness it think if, if these things aren't policed again it becomes another system whereby everyone can say well we filed our benefit uh, beneficial ownership registry information to the registry therefore everything we do must now be legit i personally th- that concern makes me think that actually enforcement tools are more important uh, so my argument would be that you would as you can tell, I'm not the lawyer here, but my, my argument for a while has been um, that an enforcement tool would be much more useful. So 
all, basically all grand corruption works through front companies, right? It works through um, money passing through a company whose owners are hidden or concealed um, to enrich a foreign official. So to advance the, the business interest on one side, to enrich the foreign official on the other, you have the front company in the middle that gives both sides deniability. The, the multinational oil company paying the bribe can say, well, we were just paying it to this consultancy firm that was helping us with our oil deal. And the, um, the official on the, on, on the other side um, can can remain hidden. Can go about doing, can go about doing his job at the oil industry without anyone knowing he's on the take. Um, and he can always deny ownership of this front company because his ownership is on page three hundred and seventy three of some documents in the British Virgin Islands. This is the key mechanism for global corruption. And I don't think, useful though it is, then a beneficial ownership registry, uh, beneficial ownership registry, especially one that's private, as I believe the US one is going to be is going to fix this. Far better is it not to say, let's have a strict liability in the way speeding works. If you're speeding, it doesn't matter if you've got uh, you know, a sick kid on the back seat, it's crime. If you miss something off your tax reserves, tax return, if you miss some of your income off, it doesn't matter if you were doing that because you, you're Al Capone or, you, uh, or an old granny who um, didn't have her glasses that day, you're, you're equally liable. Uh, so what I'm saying is that the... the um, the uh, the mental aspect of this, the mind element of this, is remo- is removed. It's just a crime. If you did it, it's a crime. It doesn't matter why. It doesn't matter that the circumstances don't matter. I'd say something like that with regard to front companies would be hugely useful. So a prosecutor, any prosecutor that can establish that a transaction has enriched a government official to benefit a business purpose, to, to advance a business purpose. Um, that that would be that would carry criminal responsibility for the people who, who who did it. You you flip the responsibility round to say it is your responsibility when going into your oil deal in Equatorial Guinea to ensure that you know the identities of all the people you're doing business with, and that none of the money flows are corrupt. You just flip it round. That's not too much to ask from the from multinationals that are richer than most countries. I'd say if you flipped it round to say. Um, you can go along, You can go ahead uh, doing all the business you like with front companies, but if it's later found that the transactions were corrupt, you'll be treated as if you'd known. That would be my. I mean, I think that's a fascinating um, idea. I think that, um, and your point about enforcement is well taken. Um, there are a lot of frustrations around, you know, little people getting audited. But big people, because they're you know not able to yeah. finance. Um, I think there's a story today, to... wasn't it, about ProPublica story about the IRS auditing well, little little people. Yeah. Little, little, little people. And, and, like, yeah. I'm I'm a little person, or, so it's not. Yeah, a, yeah, no, me a... too, me too. Glad, <laughs> glad, glad, glad to be one. I mean, uh, but but the but right. the um, yeah, to, to, um, well, ordinary people is unfortunate, but people just people, yeah. people just living their lives. People who are not members of the, uh, the global kleptocracy, yeah. But, but getting, yeah, getting, getting targeted. I, I hire a tax attorney every year to, to, to do our taxes just to make sure that, you know, I, everything is, is, is reported. And I think that there is a, and we'll link to that um, ProPublica report. There, mm. there is a reluctance to pursue, you know, bigger fish there, you know, the, the, the amount of white collar crime that was uncovered by the Mueller report. Right. And mm. by, um, <laughs> The the impeachment um, process was really fascinating, right? If if we had been in a, a different universe where um, Hillary Clinton had won the presidency, then 
some of these deals would might never have been uncovered. And so I think that's one of the takeaways that we learned from um, that process. There's an extraordinary amount of white collar crime that goes um, you know, unpunished, undetected. Yeah. And when it's detected, the regulators sometimes yeah. uh, bear the I mean, otherwise known, the <laughs> white collar crime, white collar crime, otherwise known as crime. Crime, exactly, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. But it's it's a lot easier to lock up, you know, um, people without means who are caught yeah. with uh, an ounce well, of... Isn't this just of the financial version marijuana. of the fact that you get... I, I can't call it... Or, or what I was going to say, co- co- cocaine, that, you know, in powder form, you get sure. what's up on the wrist. And in crack form... Um, uh, you can go it's to jail forever. Times, I mean, you know, on ethnic more, grounds, yeah. class li- lines. It's just this isn't just another another example to go back to what we were saying earlier of how someone sitting in um, in the Rust Belt might reasonably conclude that the system is rigged. <laughs> Indeed, and it's it, and you don't have to be uh, identify with the blue or the red to feel that. Um, that's what's Tom, so, that's what's so important. Yeah, Tom, it has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, to have you on the show. Oh, likewise. Um, the book is Kleptopia, How Dirty Money is Conquering the World. Um, our guest is Tom Burgess. We, um, I really enjoyed it. And I, you know, this, this is, uh, this book is, I really love reading um, books by journalists because you have a way about words. Um, Tom, if you don't mind, I'm going to, I'm going to brag a little bit about your writing. I enjoyed in the opening parts of the book, how you described someone, I think Nigel was born in 1950 and you, you said he was born on the hinge of the century. And I said, I know this is going to be a good book. Um, so <laughs> I really love, I really loved your descriptors. You oh, I wrote it twice. Essentially. Yeah. I mean, I oh, like, oh, yeah. but, 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 but I mean, it took me much longer than my first book, but my first book is, is like a lot of journalist book is a, is, you know, a long, a very long piece of journalism. And this book, I really, really, for, for two reasons, I'll briefly explain, really, really set out to write a nonfiction novel. So the, the genre that begins with In Cold Blood by Truman Capote, I'm not suggesting my book hits those highs or that I'm Truman Capote, however nice that particular sentence may be that you kindly mentioned. Um, but that is the that is the it is a genre for our times but but it took me a lot longer to write because you're obviously it has to feel like you're reading a, a novel and and every word has has to be true but in this on this area it's so important to do that because it forces you to get to the characters and the human beings and not get caught in the front companies and the and the decoys but get down to what human beings are doing in this world and what's driving them well, it made it eminently readable, eminently fascinating. Um, I r- highly recommend. Um, and it's a must read for anyone who wants to understand why dirty money raises the threat of totalitarianism and why it should be for, uh, fought aggressively and uh, possibly forever. We will hyperlink um, the reviews of Tom's book, uh, some Thank of you. the articles that we mentioned uh, during the podcast. Um, and also the NDAA, which we've mentioned for the second podcast in a row, where you can take a look at these important provisions intended to turn back the tide, the tidal wave of dirty money. Um, policymakers should also take note of this book and its meticulous research in detail. Um, thank you all for listening to National Security Law today. We'll continue to deliver content to you during these difficult times so that you grow your knowledge of the, of the law and all events that affect national security law. Please hit that subscribe Uh, button on your app of choice. Be sure to send us comments and feedback because we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. We're going to do what we can to keep you informed. 
And do not forget that the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. We'll be back next week with more content. Be well, be safe, and we'll come together in knowledge, education, and growth. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.